Hey there, I'm Daphna Chazen, and this is the Down to Earth PCOS Nutrition Podcast. On the show, we talk about managing PCOS using proven strategies, ditching diets for good, and balancing hormones naturally. Let's get to it. is all about hair loss and I'm joined by not one but two expert guests to cover this topic. Britt Ruder is a certified nutrition specialist and licensed dietitian nutritionist. She and her team use an in-depth root cause approach to help clients combat hair harming inflammation. By applying a functional lens to their cases, they help clients gain clarity and integrate hair supportive nutrition and lifestyle habits unique to their case. And also with us today is Britt's colleague, Amy Ely, who is also a certified nutrition specialist and licensed dietitian nutritionist. Amy earned a master's of science in holistic nutrition and integrative health from Maryland University of Integrative Health and has been working on Britt's team for three years. Britt and Amy use a collaborative approach, sharing cases and working as a team to help support their clients in achieving their goals. And we have a lot of information to cover. We are talking about root causes of hair loss, how to address any issues that you may be having. And I can tell you that I learned a lot in this conversation, and I'm sure you're going to find it super valuable. So without any further ado, let's get into my conversation with Britt and Amy. Hey there, Britt and Amy. Welcome to the show. Hey. Hi, <laughs> nice to all see you both here. And we have a really big topic to cover today, which is hair loss, which I know both of you are experts in. So I was really looking forward to this conversation. And I know my listeners are as well. Let's get started with you, Britt. Can you share a little bit about how you landed in this area? What, what made you decide to specialize in hair loss? The origin story, if you will, it goes back uh, a couple of years. And I was working with clients as their nutritionists specializing in functional medicine. And I noticed a trend, especially among the female clients that I was working with. So they would come to me for support and guidance on a lot of different issues. You know, so some maybe more specifically hormone concerns or gut related concerns or sleep issues, that sort of thing. But they shared a common concern, which was really interesting. They were all experiencing abnormal and unexplained hair loss. So they'd be sharing with me how they would brush their hair and the hairbrush would be full of hair. They were finding clumps left behind in the shower. Some had even resorted to wearing wigs or toppers because the hair loss had become so noticeable. And I think for me, given you know some of the history of health struggles that I've had, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune thyroid condition at a really young age and then another autoimmune thyroid condition around you know college years. I could really relate to and connect with how these women were feeling, how hard they were finding it to cope with their symptom emotionally, how much shame they felt, how betrayed by their bodies they were. And my heart really just broke for them. And, you know, a lot of what they were sharing with me, I had felt too, where I was doing, you know, felt like I was doing everything right in terms of healthy diets and supplements and sleep and meditation and going to the gym and all these things. And, you know, yet not finding that relief with your symptoms. That's exactly where I had been in my health journey with autoimmune thyroid, literally at my wit's end, because I felt like I was doing everything right and still not getting those results that I wanted. So, you know, after seeing this trend with clients, it really, you know, pushed me to start pouring over the research, examining the evidence, trying to apply that functional root cause lens and trying to uncover what those root causes of inflammation could be that would be interrupting the healthy hair growth process. What was, you know, was and is most shocking to me when doing this research and working with clients is that it really doesn't seem that there's very many other practitioners in the functional space that are talking about underlying issues uh, that can have a negative impact on our hair health. You know, you see a lot of kind of generic advice, take iron, check your thyroid, what about biotin, and really nobody examining much deeper what's going on beneath the surface there. So yeah, I knew that the right thing to do was to shift my clinical focus to be entirely supporting people that were experiencing hair loss. And then 
Amy and I have been on a team now for almost three years. So it's been great just teaming up together, working collaboratively to help our clients. So, and I know that we're going to dig into sharing more about underlying mechanisms to Daphna, but I, I wanted to. Before we get too far down the road, Amy and I, we really like to start by acknowledging how sensitive an issue hair loss is. A lot of our clients that we work with experience varying degrees of emotional distress. And it is so triggering, you know, when we no longer have that illusion of control over our bodies or our physical appearance. And, you know, when we're experiencing hair loss, like no more never more true than it is then. So, you know, for anybody who's listening to this, if you're feeling distraught over your hair loss, you're definitely, definitely not alone. And I think it's important to encourage anyone who's struggling to work with a licensed mental health care provider. And we also just want to affirm that the hair loss that you're experiencing isn't your fault. And you don't deserve this. We help clients with their health. And and sometimes we help them to make big changes to their nutrition and lifestyle habits, but we never want our clients to feel accused or blamed in any way. Yeah. So thank you for saying that. It is a huge component, especially with PCOS being a condition that impacts not just how you feel, but like you said, the appearance Mm -hmm. with hirsutism or hair loss or acne. And I think being sensitive and getting care that is compassionate is unfortunately rare. And... Mm -hmm is much needed. So thank you both for doing this work and for saying that. I'd love to get started with, you mentioned abnormal hair loss. What would be considered normal? Is there some definition to how someone can identify if they are within what's considered normal or not? Right. Well, it might be helpful to, you know, sometimes this can lead to like a communication impasse with, you know, between patients and their practitioners. So there is a difference between hair loss and hair shedding. And sometimes when we talk about hair loss, we really mean hair shedding. So just to put some like meat to that, what is hair loss by definition versus hair shedding? So hair loss is antigen effluvium. That's a medical term for that. That's when hair stops growing. And then hair shedding is telogen effluvium and that's excessive shedding. So sometimes, you know, we just don't know the you know correct terminology for that, but you know, it, it, normal hair loss is between 50 and 100 hairs per day. I think it is a little difficult. You know, I've talked to some clients about that where it's like, well, you know, are you losing more than 100 hairs per day? And they're like, I have no idea. It's like, I, didn't I vacuum and it's clogging my vacuum and it's clogging my bathtub drain. Like, does that count? So you definitely want to work with somebody whose scope includes diagnosis. So like a dermatologist, for example. And sometimes what people are noticing even more than the excess shedding is just general, you know, thinness, sparseness on their scalp. So getting the correct diagnosis would be something that you would work with a doctor with, not a nutritionist. But Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. So yeah. hair loss and hair shedding is used interchangeably all the time. But mm-hmm. I'm glad you clarified that. Mm-hmm. So we're I'm all about busting myths. So I want to jump right into some of the things that you see people get wrong when it comes to hair loss. What are some of the biggest misconceptions in this area? Oh, for sure. And there's a ton. You know, I don't know. I think some of that is just what we read on blogs or what we read on Instagram. There's just so much information out there and not all of it has been fact-checked. So, you know, probably not your fault if you have, you know, been led astray. So the the thing that we see people get wrong most frequently is that maybe they've received a diagnosis of androgenic alopecia or androgenetic alopecia. And there's an assumption there that there's something wrong with your androgenic hormones, or maybe that there's something wrong with your genetics, but that's not actually, you know, not necessarily the case. So a lot of clients we work with, I mean, just, I guess I'll just call it how I see it. They feel really discouraged and dismissed after speaking with their healthcare providers 
And oftentimes what they're told is that their hair loss is just coming down to bad genes or bad luck in essence. And so I think that a lot of people hear androgenetic alopecia and walk away thinking that their hair loss, that hair loss for them was somehow inevitable and that there isn't any positive action steps that they can take to try and improve the health of their hair. The other thing that I think people hear when they get diagnosed with androgenic alopecia is that there's something wrong with their androgenic hormones. So like testosterone or DHT, but that diagnosis is actually just made based on the topical presentation of hair loss. It isn't a diagnosis that is typically reached based on someone's hormone levels. So I think that those are, you know, that's like one big cluster of a misunderstanding. The second kind of area or cluster of misunderstanding that I see is I know that the listeners of your podcast have likely achieved a accurate diagnosis of PCOS, but I know that there are a number of women who experience symptoms of high androgens and they think that that means that they have PCOS, but those two things don't necessarily equal one another. You can have symptoms of high androgens and not have PCOS. And so we have a lot of clients that experience symptoms of high androgens like oily or combination skin, acne, hirsutism, which is the medical term for unwanted hair growth, greasy or oily hair, hair loss, irregular or missing period. And they're like, I definitely have PCOS. And that may or may not be the case. You know, you have to achieve an accurate diagnosis there. So we'll, we'll get into, I know throughout the rest of this podcast, other, you know, review the root causes of those high androgens, but I just wanted to mention that as an aside as well. And then the third thing I think that people get wrong is that I think that we can be a little too focused on blood levels of androgenic hormones. So this is something that a lot of people don't know. Tissues, so skin, hair follicles, they can have androgen levels that are different from levels reflected on a serum or blood test. So we see this frequently in our practice where women are experiencing hair loss and you know they kind of assume that there's androgen issues there, but then they find that they have normal or possibly even low blood or serum levels of androgenic hormones. And this is at first, I think, really confusing because they're like, like, how can I be experiencing all these symptoms? And, you know, I'm looking at my serum testosterone, it's so low. Just to get a little technical here for just one, one quick minute. So if you're, don't turn off your brain for this part, don't get bored. I promise this is short and it's very interesting. We have an enzyme called 5-alpha reductase which converts testosterone into the more potent androgen DHT. And that enzyme functions at a very localized or tissue-specific level. So where the 5-alpha reductase enzyme activity is upregulated or increased, the concentration of those potent androgens will be higher and symptoms of androgen excess may exist. So what we need to do is not necessarily hyperfixate on serum levels of some of those androgenic hormones, but think about normalizing the 5-alpha reductase activity to balance tissue levels of DHT and, you know, promote balanced serum levels as well where applicable. But those would be the, the top three big, big misconceptions that we see pretty frequently. Okay. So I want to piggyback off of some of the things you said, because you just gave us a lot of great information. So with the first one, with the diagnosis of androgenic alopecia, so you're saying androgen levels may be normal, not elevated, but the way that it is manifested is in a male pattern, right? Which is why it's called androgenic because those are male hormones that would usually cause that, but that's not necessarily the case. Right. So the dermatologist generally makes a diagnosis by examining the pattern of hair loss. They're asking, is it primarily focused like on the crown of the head? Is it diffuse? Is it patchy? You know, those are some of the criteria that a doctor is using to diagnose what type of hair loss that someone is experiencing. They're not necessarily doing like serum blood work to find out if, you know, your androgenic hormone levels are high, medium, low. So, yeah. And is there a correlation or any sort of clue that we can take from the pattern? Like if someone's ponytail is thinning, but their middle part is not widening or something like that? Or is it very different for each person? That's a really good question. You know, typically what we do, because we're not in the 
business of diagnosing as nutritionists is we see hair loss as a clue. You know, that's a very functional medicine type approach, but it's one clue. And so we're what we like to do is really we send out our clients this intake form called a symptom survey. And so it focuses on all these different areas. So one of the clues in there is hair loss, but it might not be until you look at the wider symptoms that someone's experiencing that you start to get an idea of what sort of underlying issues someone is dealing with, you know, whether that's, you know, because we can experience hair loss related to any number of issues. And so it's the constellation of the other symptoms that might give us a better indication of what's going on beneath the surface compared to say, focusing on how the hair loss is presenting topically. Yeah. Yeah. So, which is essentially the difference between how conventional medicine approaches things versus functional medicine, right? Yeah, I think that that could be one key difference. I think I think really the primary difference is that a conventional medicine approach is really top down. So if you look at the symptoms as being at the surface level, conventional medicine responds by silencing and suppressing symptoms. So it's like, how can we make this symptom go away? How can we make hair loss go away? Whereas functional medicine is very much bottom up. So it goes down to that root cause layer and it says like, oh, okay, so hair loss is happening. Like, how can we go deeper, deeper, deeper and find out like, oh, all right. So someone is struggling with upregulating 5-alpha reductase. And this is why, because of X, Y, and Z, and really digging into the the root causes that way. So trying to understand why it's happening versus just trying to make it be quiet and go away. Yeah, makes total sense. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned DHT and you said, I just want to kind of fine tune this point (laughs) to make sure that people understand. So someone could have very normal androgen levels across the board. So free testosterone, total testosterone, but you were saying testosterone has almost like a meaner version, a more potent version of itself that can be produced in the body, right? Yeah. And so is that something that someone can get tested on on a regular blood work? Yeah, so you can have your serum levels of DHT dihydrotestosterone tested. So there's there's lots of different androgenic hormones, masculinizing hormones that women do need just in smaller quantities than men. So it's not, you know, necessarily a bad hormone per se, even though we it gets that rap because it does, you know, when it's too high, we really don't enjoy those symptoms that it it provokes. But DHT is a more potent androgen. I like to say, I don't know if this makes any sense, but it hasn't stopped me from saying it. It does more androgeny things. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it that's just kind of uh, how it works. So it, it, for example, it more readily binds to the hormone receptors on a hair follicle. And so typically when someone's struggling with symptoms related to high androgens, what's beneath the surface is this DHT levels. So all of our hormones are interrelated. So let's say that we have higher than normal levels of the androgen DHEA. We might not think that that's, you know, any issue because it's not DHT, it's not testosterone. But because our hormones are interrelated, that basically means that there's like a pool of raw material that could be used to produce testosterone and then DHT. So we have to look at, you know, sure individual hormone levels can be helpful, can be interesting, but I think also just kind of casting the net a little wider and figuring out what's happening, you know, with other hormones, uh, what's happening with our other androgens, what's happening with our estrogens or our progesterone. Um, So getting, you know, our hormones tested comprehensively and then also, you know, focusing in on that enzyme activity, the 5-alpha reductase enzyme activity as well. Okay, great. So what kind of testing do you usually run in order to find all of this out? Yeah, so the the test that we like to use frequently in practice is called the Dutch Complete. It's an acronym dried urinary test for comprehensive hormones. And the reason that well, we like it for many different reasons, but one of the the top reasons that we like it is because it's an at-home urine test and it tells us also about 5-alpha reductase activity levels as well as the values for 35 different hormones. So it's super useful to get all of that information from one test that doesn't even require a blood draw. So the other reason that we really like that test is because you know it can give us a window into some of those underlying root causes that can lead to symptoms of high androgens 
such as hair loss. And I know like Amy's probably itching right now to jump in <laughs> with some of those root causes of high 5-alpha reductase activity, as well as high androgens that we frequently see reflected on the Dutch test. So I don't know if I can toss the mic off to her, Daphna. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about some of those specific root causes. What, what would they be or what are the most common ones you see? So some of the most common ones we see are stress. That's a big one. And that's a key takeaway that we get from the Dutch test. So the Dutch test looks at our adrenal function and measures our diurnal rhythm of stress hormones, cortisol and cortisone. It gives us key insights to our HPA access, which is the connection between our hypothalamus, our pituitary and our adrenal glands. So I know those are a lot of words that we're... Yeah, can you around. break it down for us a little bit in everyday terms? So what is so the the Dutch test is a urine test. So let's just repeat yeah. that. So someone would take it at home, they would mm-hmm. essentially pee on a piece of paper and yeah. then it gets dried up and sent to a lab. And then yeah. why is that better than a blood draw or why is that different? How is that different? Easier for our clients mm-hmm. to do at home by themselves. They don't have to go to the lab to get a blood draw. I was just going to say one really quick thing. I'm so sorry. So I was just going to say that one of the things that I like best about it is the adrenal piece of it, where when you do a blood test, it's not as common to see a blood test for cortisol values, to be honest, but you'll sometimes see like your, you're not urinary, so the salivary test. Yeah. Yep, mm-hmm. exactly. So you'll see salivary tests for cortisol. So how the Dutch adrenal portion of the test which is included in the Dutch Complete, how that stacks up against the serum or the salivary, is that those serum and salivary tests only look at the free cortisol, but the Dutch test looks at the metabolized cortisol, which is called cortisone. So it can give you a much more comprehensive picture of how your adrenal glands are performing under chronic stress. And then it also has you know multiple samples collected throughout the day. So you're getting like your waking, your morning, your afternoon, your evening levels to get that diurnal pattern picture that Amy was sharing about. So anyway. Okay. So that makes sense. So the saliva test as part of the Dutch test helps you look at the stress response based on the cortisol levels throughout the day, right? It doesn't have a salivary component to it. It's just completed all with the urine piece, but just it's better in you know our expert opinion compared to the salivary test. So it's able to test the free cortisol, just like the salivary or serum cortisol test do, but it's also in addition able to test the metabolized cortisol called cortisone. So it's superior in that way at assessing really how your body is adapting under chronic stress, you know, whether it's like late stage exhaustion or in that like early stage when we're facing a stress response or, you know, maybe everything is just going high, like high cortisol and high DHEA. So it's going to give us a really comprehensive picture for that. So I just wanted to say that not even on the like sex hormone side, the steroid hormone side, but just even on the adrenal portion of the test, I prefer it for that reason. But then exactly what Amy was saying about just the convenience of testing so many different hormones on Mm -hmm. like one urine sample. Okay, great. So stress is one root cause. What else? So stress can have a negative impact on our hair in a number of different ways. So one of the top ways that it can harm our hair is with excess amounts of cortisol. And the these increase the levels of that enzyme 5 alpha reductase that we've been, you know, talking about over and over again. <laughs> Another way is that increased stress can also push our adrenals to produce more of the androgenic hormone DHEA. And as Britt mentioned, that's more raw material to go towards that DHT. So normally our adrenal glands contribute roughly half of our total androgen levels, but when they're in overdrive, it can increase the amount of androgenic hormone that they are producing. And then since these androgens can be converted into other androgens, you know, we get more symptoms of hair loss. Okay. A second root cause that we like to look at with the Dutch test is progesterone levels. So some people call it an anti-androgen. And it's cool because it actually blocks 5-alpha reductase activity. So if someone is struggling with low progesterone, something that we frequently see in our clients who have a history of things like hormonal birth control, underactive thyroid hormone, undereating and overtraining is a big one, mm-hmm. then it might be paving the way for more of that androgen activity. 
And then the third root cause that we see that we actually is not part of the Dutch test, but is more of a blood test is insulin levels. So clients struggling with androgenic hormone balance actually relates to insulin. Insulin is a hormone produced by our pancreas, you know, used to transport energy from the foods that we're eating to our cells. You know, a lot of us, I feel like most commonly people think of insulin when they think of diabetes, not saying that if you have high insulin, you have diabetes, but that's where most people hear that word. So what we want is to be insulin sensitive. But what we see is that clients can become either insulin resistant or sometimes just insulin insensitive, so to speak. And so Mm. high insulin leads to that insulin resistance. And then our target organs become less sensitive to insulin and cause increased levels of blood glucose. (laughs) And then our beta cells in the pancreas secrete more insulin causing a rise in plasma insulin. So it's this kind of vicious cycle. And this is especially applicable to listeners in your podcast because insulin resistance may impact 50 to 70% of women who are experiencing PCOS. So insulin is a big factor with the PCOS and hair loss. And because it's so much more sensitive than fasting glucose, we prefer to have clients test their fasting insulin levels. In an optimal level, we like to see right around 5 And then higher than optimal levels of fasting insulin can actually push for the production of higher levels of androgens and increased activity of, again, that 5-alpha reductase enzyme. So they're all interrelated. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Higher levels of insulin can be a cause for higher levels of androgens. However, high levels of insulin also have several root causes. So the root cause of high fasting insulin can be Quite a lot to cover in a podcast. (laughs) You know, we could spend all day here. But one thing that I want to say is that it really bothers me when I see carbohydrate intake made to be out to be the sole contributor to insulin resistance and the low carb or keto diets made to look like the only solution. So studies have shown that low carb diets actually can increase the production of cortisol and push our HPA access further out of balance. So this means that following a low-carb diet can be a source of stress on our bodies and really be counterproductive to a lot of our clients, especially experiencing hair loss. And then one other important fact with insulin is studies have shown that even just one night of poor sleep can induce insulin resistance. So, you know, therefore, carbs aren't the only perpetrator. There's lots of other things that contribute to our insulin resistance. Okay. So let's just recap our biggest root causes. Okay. So we talked about stress. It seems like a lot of them go back to essentially DHT, right? Essentially those high androgen levels, whether that's driven through insulin resistance, maybe that's through low progesterone. So all the things that you mentioned go back to something under the surface that's causing those androgens to go higher maybe not high enough to be seen on a blood test, but certainly there's some activity that's abnormal, whether that's with the total amount or with DHT, how it converts to that form of testosterone. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you're recommending the Dutch test as a great way to try and start deciphering this. Do you see a lot of people have an overlap of some of these root causes? Oh, 100%. It's never just one thing. And it would be really nice to say like, oh, you know, there's just one root cause, one simple change. But unfortunately, that's not the way that it works for any of us. Yeah. (laughs) So oftentimes we're helping our clients to uncover numerous root causes and make plans or protocols to implement many changes over the course of our time together. And this can be to their nutrition, their lifestyle, all sorts of things. I know that Dutch test is not a diagnostic test and we are certainly not in position as nutritionists to diagnose, but are there any medical conditions that often correlate or overlap with hair loss that you see commonly? And maybe that's something that's shown on a Dutch test. So you mentioned thyroid, maybe other, you know, autoimmune conditions. I mean, we see, this is Britt, we see clients that experience a myriad of different diagnoses. I think underneath that, so this is kind of how I describe it to clients. 
you and I, you know, Brit and Daphna, we could experience the exact same root cause. Let's say that we both have some gut dysbiosis, a hidden infection in our gut, you know, maybe an overgrowth of some pathogenic inflammatory E. coli. And because of your unique genetic makeup, maybe that gut dysbiosis for you manifests as eczema. And maybe for me, it manifests as hair loss. So I think it's important not to get too caught up in a you know one-to-one relationship. Like, well, what's the root cause of hair loss or what's the root cause of PCOS hair loss? Because there's going to be, you know, any you know, infinite number of combinations of different root causes that will contribute to inflammation and how that inflammation presents will really be dependent on the individual. So when we're able to capture all of that information on the Dutch test, it's interesting because I think like root causes, you can keep going deeper and deeper. So like when Amy was talking about stress, for example, you know, it could be perceived stress, which you know, could even have its own set of root causes, you know, if you want to think about it that way, like maybe somebody's really struggling with, you know, setting healthy boundaries, or maybe somebody's struggling with unresolved childhood trauma, you know, so it's like that those are going to be two, you know, potentially different clients, you know, maybe somebody's struggling with that HPA access dysregulation that Amy talked about, because they aren't practicing good sleep hygiene and they're looking at their phone until 2 a.m., you know, that could be another root cause or even under that progesterone, low progesterone has its own umbrella of different root causes. So, you know, somebody might be experiencing hormone-related hair loss, have a diagnosis of PCOS. We do the Dutch test. We find out that they have low progesterone. But, you know, maybe one person has low progesterone because they're under eating and overtraining. Maybe someone else has low progesterone because they have underactive thyroid. So we have to, you know, run some thyroid tests and figure out how to support the thyroid health there. And, you know, so it, it's often complex. And I don't want to, I think, you know, one thing that I've learned, Amy and I talk about this pretty frequently too, just kind of reflecting on our own health journeys is that when I kind of got started thinking about functional medicine and a root cause approach when I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's in my 20s, was I really thought that there was going to be a point where I had achieved health, where it was like almost a destination, like, oh, I've arrived, like I'm done. I don't have to think about my health or make it as you know central a theme in my life. I just kind of wanted to I was being able to just kind of live without an awareness of my health or my thyroid. And kind of wishing that I could go back to that, you know, being naive or innocent in a way. And what I have learned, you know, from even that, you know, point almost, you know, 10, 15 years ago is that wellness is a direction of travel, not a destination. And so even though these root causes that we've talked about can seem overwhelming, it's really just good to start where we're at and just the next thing, you know, making progressive improvements. And oftentimes when we make even small changes to our nutrition or lifestyle, we can kind of have a domino effect in a positive way and can have a positive impact on all of these different root causes. You know, just like good nutrition is a great way to build, you know, hormones. It's also a great way to support gut health. You know, it's also going to be, you know, have a stabilizing effect on our blood sugar and all those things. So I don't want to, you know, make people feel scared or overwhelmed by all this. It, It can be, it can feel overwhelming sometimes, but, you know, just it's important to just, you know, kind of keep at it. You know, you're on a journey. It's not going to be solved overnight. But the most important thing is just that you're headed in the right direction and just taking that next step wherever you're at. Yeah, I like that. It's not a destination. It's a direction of travel. I like Mm -hmm. that a lot. I think Mm -hmm. that's definitely a relief to a lot of people to hear that. And there's going to be ups and downs. And that's why it's called a journey. So I want to go back to what you talked about regarding inflammation in the gut. So where does that fit in? Because we went through some of the root causes. Do you then go deeper, like you said, after you say someone does the Dutch test, they identify mm-hmm. cortisol issues or, or any other of the hormones that are imbalanced? Would that then lead you to look for the source of those imbalances? How, wh- where does inflammation and gut health and all of that fit in? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. 
So our typical process is to do a 90-minute lab determination call with clients. And leading up to that call, we're having them complete really detailed intake forms, uploading historical labs. You know, we're looking at that, you know, spending probably four to six hours before that 90-minute call, just reviewing all the client materials that they've uploaded. So... And then we do the interview with them for 90 minutes and they are able to gather a lot more information. So basically, based on all that information that we gather, we're kind of putting together a theory in a way, a hypothesis. We're like, hmm, they seem to be, you know, struggling with a lot of symptoms that are consistent with like protein maldigestion, or, you know, they have a lot of gut specific symptoms like heartburn and bloating and maybe alternating constipation and diarrhea. And that might make us think, you know what? We don't see any stool testing in this client's history. So we'd like to order a stool test for them. In our practice, we prefer a test called the GI map that's offered through a lab called Diagnostic Solutions. So we might order that concurrently with a Dutch complete or, you know, the client that we feel like it's indicated. You know, it might also, some of the testing that we might ask for might include like blood tests that they could get through their primary care. So maybe they have a history of underactive thyroid and it's been a while since they had a thyroid hormone panel or they've never had fasting insulin tested before. And we're starting to see, you know, symptoms that are consistent with insulin insensitivity. So that's kind of when we're gathering that info. It might not be that we do a Dutch test and the Dutch test is pointing us to go do a stool test, although that's a possibility as well. It just depends on the case. Something that's kind of interesting is that hidden gut infections can be a source of stress on our body. There's actually a cortisol response that comes from that inflammatory process that could begin in our gut. So, you know, this is kind of uh, top of mind for me. So last year, I had to have surgery on my knee and I required, you know, intense antibiotics, which I'm thankful for because that means I did not get, you know, an infection post-surgery. But the downside is that it, you know, obliterated my gut microbiome and, you know, really kind of threw off the ecology of my gut there. And really just created a more pro-inflammatory terrain. And I saw, you know, effects with my hormones too. And so, you know, just kind of understanding root causes the way that I do, sort of the way that I was promoting balance with my hormones was to promote balance in my gut to, you know, address some of those you know, either overgrowth or, you know, maybe microbiome depletions based on my own stool test. And that is relieving that stress on my body and would make my Dutch test, you know, appear more normal over time, that diurnal rhythm of cortisol levels. So, okay. Amy, I want to go into some of the things that people can do to manage their hair loss and based on the root causes that you mentioned. So can you share a little bit about what are some of the top ways someone can start tackling this issue? Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's important to get to that root cause. And I encourage anyone listening to remember that even though the symptoms they're struggling with feel like unbearable and you're desperate for relief, don't get so caught up in just symptom management. So a root cause approach sees those symptoms as clues like Britt has already mentioned and knows that if we fix the issues over the long term, then we need to address what's going on beneath the surface. So these symptoms will be unique to each individual. We're covering common ones. Some of them may be applicable to your listeners. Some may not be at all applicable. So we like to help our clients kind of uncover what's going on with them. Like one thing for nutrition, you know, make sure you're eating enough. A lot of our clients aren't eating enough. They come to us and, you know, we're all busy. Everyone, you know, gets caught up. And I have, you know, some clients are like, oh, I never eat lunch. I always forget. (laughs) So, and sometimes they've been encouraged to follow a very low or calorie restrictive diet or they're, you know, they've been encouraged to remove a lot of foods from their diet because they might be reacting to those foods. And so they get overwhelmed by all of the things that they need to remove. So they just don't eat as much or, you know, eating becomes sort of a source of stress for them because, you know, they're reactive to everything. And so we've created a bit of a fear around food, you know, so to speak. So 
definitely eating enough. It's also really helpful to include those healthy proteins and fats with our meals. These can promote blood sugar balance. It's really important for our hormonal health. So, you know, things like that. And I know there's some nutrients that Brit is, those are her kind of forte of what's oh, good for well, her. <laughs> I, I was just going to uh, yeah, jump in and say that on top of that, nutrients like magnesium and vitamin C can be really supportive to our adrenals and our stress response, which I think, you know, as kind of Amy was laying out earlier, are foundational to achieving hormone balance. So it's like if the issue that we feel like is plaguing us is high androgens, then focusing in on normalizing our stress response is going to be central. So magnesium and vitamin C are both really helpful for that. You know, what supplements someone may benefit from using will be very specific to their case, of course, but those are are some that we, you know, often use in, in our practice. Okay, great. Are there any lifestyle factors or habits that you usually promote as far as specifically to reduce androgens and hair loss? Yeah, Amy, did you want to share those? Sure. Yeah, I can do that. (laughs) So one is to improve your sleep quantity and quality. So we already kind of covered the role that sleep plays in maintaining those insulin sensitivities and promoting hormone balance. But sleep is a big thing. You know, so many people are stressed out or they go to bed late and get up early and they have children that wake them up all night. And, you know, sleep is just such an important factor. So aiming to get that seven to eight hours of sleep per night. So meaning you're in bed and not on your phone for about eight to nine hours, practicing good sleep hygiene. So going to bed and waking up at the same time, keeping your room cool, keeping it dark, putting away your technology, not sleeping with the TV on, things like that. And it sounds kind of silly and like a not such an important thing, but sleep is foundational to our hair health. And we like to say that you can't supplement your way out of poor sleep habits. <laughs> I would say too, this is Britt, that something that we see a lot with clients is that they will prioritize a fitness routine over sleep. You know, so like wait, you know, going to bed at 10 o'clock at night, waking up at four in the morning just to get in a, you know, hit workout or, you know, orange theory or something before work. And we would much rather see clients prioritize that rest. You know, it's really just a foundational piece to our overall wellness. And it's, effects, its benefits are going to be so much further reaching than, you know, dipping into that critical sleep time to fit in a high intensity workout. You know, that pattern that we see, which is often also combined with under eating, you know, people that aren't feeling their bodies like they're athletes, even though they're training like them, I'd say is like a very common pattern that we see with clients that we support. And it's really just like the perfect storm for hormone imbalance. It's like, if you want to have hormone imbalance, just don't eat, work out all the time and don't sleep. Like, okay. So I mean, not, not to sound you know overly critical because I think we're told that that's what we should do to promote health but couldn't be further from it. Okay. Yeah. I think this goes with, you know, hustle culture and do more and multitask mm-hmm. and get it all done and check you off got the it. list. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. And I see this all the time. So anyone who's listening, who's in that on that hamster wheel, this is your sign to get off. This is your yeah. sign to, you know, to <laughs> prioritize your rest, your sleep, your self-care. Absolutely. Anything else as far as nutrition that you can, you know, recommend without knowing obviously anyone's situation or specifics, but what are some of the the biggest nutrition modifications that have worked for your clients other than eating enough and prioritizing the proteins and fats? Yeah, I think that, I mean, the reason that we say to prioritize the proteins and the fats is because it has a, a stabilizing effect on our blood sugar. Amy kind of hinted at this before, but um, we don't recommend low carbohydrate diets, you know, like keto for our clients, even though there seems to be a strong reliance on those, you know, it's a pretty common recommendation that we see. And the reason is because of the, you know, increase in cortisol that studies show um, happens after women do a low carb diet which can have a very destabilizing effect on our hormones. You also need adequate carbohydrates to support thyroid health. So in general, we try to apply 
like loosely apply an intuitive eating model to the clients that we work with in practice. You know, we don't believe in relying heavily on restriction. I feel like that is a great way to, you know, really compromise someone's relationship with food and make them feel quote unquote uncontrolled, you know, or out of control around, you know, certain foods. So I think, you know, sometimes it's like one of the strategies that we use with clients is how to pick snacks that are, you know, high protein or contain healthy fats that they enjoy so that they can kind of have things on hand that sound appetizing to them in that moment. So that they don't feel, you know, restricted or like they're eating, you know, special diet food or, you know, anything like that. So I think that that's been a huge part of it. I think also just working with clients to, you know, help them explore different phytonutrient rich foods, you know, eating different colors can be really helpful, you know, getting in those great antioxidants, which can play a really important role in protecting our cellular health and promoting insulin signaling, great for our gut health too. So oftentimes we'll help clients with recipe resources, you know, just to try to get different colors of fruits and vegetables into their diet kind of on a weekly basis. I know I've seen some resources that are like, you have to eat every color every day. And it's like, well, I've tried it and it's really hard actually. So how about every week? You know, I'll eat the blueberries today. I'll eat the yellow squash tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Moderation, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's be more practical. I think also just being mindful of caffeine and alcohol intake, you know, has been a big one. I know that a lot of the clients we work with utilize one or both of those, you know, in, in a way that they even see, you know, as maybe not being you know, sustainable or healthy for them. Maybe they're feeling really stressed out and they come home every night and they have a glass of wine. That can have a really destabilizing effect on our adrenals and our hormones as well. So, you know, sometimes we're helping clients, you know, maybe develop other coping mechanisms, you know, like, hey, well, I know that you're hungry for some like self-care and for some downtime and some me time. And right now, you know, a glass of Chardonnay has been Meeting that need, like, let's come up, let's you and I brainstorm some, you know, other things that could be nourishing and rejuvenative to you that don't have such a destabilizing effect on your blood sugar, for example. So, yeah. We hear a lot about foods that are inflammatory and Mm. we're going to air quote this, but I want to make sure that we cover things that are very trendy. So things like nightshades and beans with the the lectins and the phytates and yeah yeah so you know where I'm going with this I do get both of your (laughs) thoughts on this kind of narrative because I have a lot of clients who come to me and like you said there's a lot of stress and fear around certain foods Mm -hmm. what are some of the things we know the evidence behind this if there's any and how do you see this this is pretty, I guess I'll go first so why in my journey with my autoimmune thyroid disease Before I completed my master's in nutrition and functional medicine, you know, I was trying to solve all my problems with food. And I went on the AIP diet, the autoimmune paleo diet, which is, you know, scares the bejeebus out of you. (laughs) Like no eggs, no dairy, like no nightshades. And I followed that diet for two years. um, Thinking that, you know, this is how I'm going to solve the problem of my autoimmune disease. And I'll tell you, I was at probably the worst health that I've ever had, even though I was doing everything quote unquote, right. And, you know, it really was something that I wasn't even aware of until one night I had like a hamburger and I realized that it had ground cumin in it, which is a nightshade. And then you're not supposed to eat that on that diet. And I literally broke down crying over this like cumin. And it was a real like low point for me where I was, you know, just, just starting to like realize the, the negative psychological impact that such a restrictive diet was like having on me. So I think that, you know, upon reflection, 
diet can't solve everything, you know, and I think that in functional medicine specifically, that isn't, you know, in that space, that isn't something that gets called out enough. I think, you know, obviously as nutritionists, that diet can play a super significant role in helping to shape our health. However, not every single health condition that we have is solvable by diet. And sometimes, you know, maybe even more often than not, restriction isn't the answer. Sometimes adding more in, you know, or just shifting, you know, our nutrient intake can be more beneficial than just removing foods. Yeah. So there is, there is quite a lot of nuance there. It's hard, right? Because it's like, we want to, you know, when we talk to clients, we want to say, Hey, you're empowered to like do so much, like things that you do can really have a positive impact. But, you know, like we said at the top, we don't want anyone to ever hear that and feel like they're being blamed or accused. Like, well, it's your fault that this, you know, that you have hypothyroid. And if you only would stop eating nightshades, then it would go away, you know, because that is just way too reductionistic and really not accurate. Yeah, I totally agree. And this is why I think the conversation around nutrition needs to also include a lot of disclaimers about other things that are important and can be used concurrently like medications, you know, Mm -hmm, and someone shouldn't feel like a failure if they, you know, take medications (laughs) and also they can do both and it's perfectly fine. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think it's similar to the conversation online and in other places about you know, anxiety and depression and things like yoga or meditation. Well, you know what? Someone cannot yoga their way through depression if they have a chemical imbalance in their brain, right? So yoga is great, but we may also need a a medication and there's no shame in that. Absolutely. No, I think you encapsulated our philosophy perfectly where it's like, yeah, well, what are some positive things that we can do? You know, in it, it's like an and not an or conversation. Exactly. Exactly. Amy, do you have anything to add to this? Just on that note, I do feel like the functional medicine space, some of them or some of us, you know, like you said, that medication sort of gets like demonized and you get this sort of sense of like, well, if I need medication, I'm obviously not doing Doing it right. Yeah. Doing it right. And so I think it's really important to just know that, like you said, you're not a failure. And I think that it's important for functional medicine as a whole to realize that there is a place for all of us in this health journey. (laughs) Amen. I'm totally with you on that. I think that's so important and it's not talked about enough. So I'm glad we brought that up. Anything else as far as treatments or approaches? I do have a question about minoxidil. So I don't Mm. know. And Britt, I saw you talk about dry shampoo somewhere. So there's some (laughs) random odds and ends that I want to kind of bring up there. I know it's it's anything but a root cause approach to talk about minoxidil, but I do want to mention it because... I have many women who ask about it and use it and some see results, some don't. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, we recently did an Instagram live on oral minoxidil as well, because that's being used off-label to treat hair loss. And so I think with some mixed results, typically people are accustomed to using topical minoxidil, which um, is the like name brand Rogaine, I think where most people are probably familiar with it. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we have a number of clients that are using it in addition to, you know, working with us. So it's not like you, like we were just talking about, it's not as though you have to abandon, you know, one for the other. But the thing about both the oral and the topical minoxidil is that when you stop working or you stop taking it, it stops working because it really hasn't done anything to address the underlying root cause. So it's like whatever underlying inflammation is interrupting the normal hair growth cycle, if that's not being addressed, you know, when the minoxidil usage ceases, then that root cause is still waiting, you know, for you. And it's still going to, you know, keep driving that, that hair loss. So I think, you know, whether or not someone decides to use it, you know, it, it doesn't negate the, the importance of digging deeper into what's going on underneath the surface and seeing, you know, if there's some way that, you know, we can address those. So. Okay. There was a point in my life when I wanted to marry dry shampoo. So yeah. please, um, it's no longer the case. And oh, okay. I'm so sorry person. to hear about that relationship, you know. And, yeah, it, yeah. Went, it, went, it went away. So I just wanted to know 
where we stand on that. Yeah. So I also was once in a committed relationship with dry shampoo. So we'll have to compare notes on that sometime. So I recently did a updated version of our natural dry shampoo review. So a lot of the dry shampoos that you would find at big box stores, you know, like Target, you actually really can't find very many good natural ones there. You know, you see basically all the ones that come in aerosol cans are going to come with some kind of scary propellants, you know, like butane or propane. And they, I have yet to find one that doesn't have any fragrance in it. Sometimes they'll be like, it's fragranced bare. You're like, what is that? You know, and it's, <laughs> it's just like, you know, it smells like a deodorant or something, you know, or a dryer sheet or, you know, so fragrance as a, you know, single line item on a, ingredient list is actually, you know, potentially made up of hundreds of different synthetic chemicals. It's a proprietary thing that each company develops. And a lot of those chemicals have hormone disrupting properties. And so we're spraying it on our scalp, which is our skin and it's our largest organ, you know, so there's the possibility to absorb toxins, hormone disruptors that way. But it's also, if you use dry shampoo that comes in aerosol can, it's like in your mouth, it's in your nose, you know, it's in your eyes. It's like, it's, it's in there, it's everywhere. So I knew that I wanted to find a natural dry shampoo, but those aren't really created equally either. I mean, the term natural isn't really regulated. So if we're just looking for something that has the word natural on the label, that might not mean anything. But even brands that I trusted... A lot of them I found were using really abrasive ingredients like baking soda. So not only is baking soda abrasive, which can you know be irritating to our scalp, especially if anybody has like a already irritated or sensitive scalp, it could you know potentially damage our, the strands of our hair just by kind of like roughing them up. But it also is a strong alkaline. And our scalp, our skin, as also in general, prefers an acidic pH. So what we you know, want is to have that acidic pH in order to maintain a healthy skin microbiome. So like when someone's struggling with chronic dandruff or seborrheic dermatitis, that could be a symptom of skin microbiome imbalance that can be promoted by alkalizing products. Like our shampoos are very basic or alkalizing. So I did this review of dry shampoos that used, you know, new pH neutral ingredients, you know, that weren't super abrasive and just give my honest two cents on which ones I prefer. So it's, it's a free guide. So you can grab that PDF. And then I also included a recipe for an apple cider vinegar rinse just to help reacidify the scalp. Mm. So that's in there as well. So I use that, you know, at least once or twice a week and kind of do like an every other day you know, shampoo for myself personally. So just, you know, dry shampoo on the, on the off days. So, okay. That's yeah. interesting. So I'm yeah. going to get my hands on that guide for sure, but Definitely. we'll do it in the show notes as well. Mm-hmm. On that note, what about things like rosemary oil and other topicals that are more natural? Are there ones that you recommend? Yeah, actually, I'll have Amy grab this question because I know that she's working on a little research project for us. So we were going to, you know, develop some topical treatments for clients, you know, just like at home hair and scalp leave-in type stuff. So I'm sure that she would be the, the expert on that one. So there are some topical treatments. Obviously, the research around these at home treatments is quite low. So While there are studies, there are small number studies, but rosemary oil twice per day did see moderate improvements after six months of use comparable to like minoxidil or Rogaine. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt, but is that for preventing shedding or regrowth or both? Meaning does it help with stopping the shedding or does it help regrow the hair? The study specifically looked at hair regrowth. But I mean, if you think about regrowth, if your hair is getting thicker, you're most likely shedding less mm-hmm. or like the normal amount, so to speak, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it can be helpful. It can be irritating to some. So if you do use rosemary oil, make sure you're not using like straight rosemary oil. You have to dilute it down to, so that it's With not like... oil. Yeah. Yes. So it's not, you know, irritating your scalp even more. 
In some of the research I found, there was a six-month study done on both men and women, and they applied CBD lotion for six months, and they found a significant increase in the number of hairs. Again, it's a small-scale study, and there wasn't a placebo-controlled group, so it was sort of like, could it be? But there is something to be said about hair loss and the muscle tension that we can get in our scalp, because there are lots of muscles that you know, live under your scalp that you don't think about because they're small and you don't like, I don't think about the muscle that's like right by your temple. I don't know the name of it, right. but you know, those are things you don't really think about because it's your head and you're just worried about your hair not the muscles in there. But muscle tension can be related in a way to hair loss. So CBD lotion can be relaxing for muscles. So maybe there could okay, be some maybe positive. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then there's lots of recipes you can find online, like aloe vera can be very soothing for your scalp, the apple cider vinegar rinse, they're not necessarily going to like promote regrowth. But we also look at it as like a self care moment, like you do this nice, you know, deep conditioning, deep scalp massage exfoliation, and you just have this like, calming, relaxing moment. So, you know, it's also helpful for your stress levels to, you know, yeah, do I love that. So it's not harmful in any way. If nothing else, right. it's going to help you re- re- de-stress a little bit. Something, yeah, exactly. something that some clients have said is that they get really anxious or like stressed on yeah. shampoo days. And so, I mean, I think that really anytime that we're finding it hard to you know, take care of some of our basic needs. So like our basic need of hygiene because of a health condition that we're experiencing. I think that that's a great time to reach out to a licensed mental health care provider and just share with them that feeling that you're having. Washing hair doesn't actually promote hair loss. So like washing your hair less frequently isn't going to cause less hair to fall out. It feels that way, you know, when you're in the shower, when you're handling your hair and you're, you know, seeing it that way. So I don't want to minimize anyone's experience there, but just, you know, factually, it's not actually contributing to hair loss. But if you're feeling that anxiousness, you know, or resistance that they're noticing a change in your hygiene habits, then, you know, just definitely want to encourage you to reach out to the, you know, right people to share that experience with and, and get guidance on. Okay, great. I have a few rapid question fires for you, ladies, and then yes. we'll wrap up. Are you ready? We are ready. All right. (laughs) Amy, what is your current favorite meal? Let's start off nice and easy with that. My current (laughs) favorite meal. Well, I really like Mexican food. So like burritos or tacos. That's like, and like tacos are so easy to just whip up. So I feel like my go-to meal is like Taco Tuesday. (laughs) Okay, great. Soft or hard shell? I like soft shell. Wow, the hard shell people are going to be so angry right now. I just sense angry emails coming. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) The hard shell situation gets very messy. That's my one harder. It's way harder to eat because the shell cracks Cracks and everything falls out. Yeah, I'm with with you. I'm with you. (laughs) Britt, if you weren't a nutritionist, what would you be? So I actually have a undergrad degree in business. So I think that... You know, practically speaking, if I wasn't a nutritionist, I would probably be working in marketing. Okay. All right. Amy, if you could go to dinner with one famous person, dead or alive, it could be either, who would it be? It would be Leslie Jordan. Okay. I know. Rest in peace. Such a sweet little old man. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I was so sad when I saw on the news. I know. Passed away. I was devastated. But during the pandemic, I don't know if you were one of, me who followed him on his Instagram because he posted some really great videos and would refer to everyone as all his fellow hunker downers. Oh, cute. (laughs) And it was just like, you know, it was a dark time for all of us. So it was just like a nice little light. Yeah, yeah, that's cute. I like that. And Britt, I have one final one for you. This is health related. So what do you think is one healthy habit that is totally underrated? We don't talk about it enough. I think that breaking up your day by 
going for a quick walk or just even like stretching your legs, stretching your body throughout the day is super underrated. I think we think that we have to like go hard and like do a really intense workout, but really just just getting up and moving around ever so often can have a lot of great benefits. Okay, great. I love that. I want to give you the opportunity to share a little resource or any anything you have going on in your business right now, as well as where my listeners can find out more information about you too. So to learn more about myself and Amy, you can visit the website. So it's britruder.com and you can find free resources like my blog and complimentary eBooks like the um, Natural Dry Shampoo review that we were just talking about. So all of that's on the website. And then you can follow us on Instagram. And I'm also on TikTok. So BritRooter underscore CNS. And then Amy is A-I-M-E and she's Amy Ely at underscore CNS. So we're, we're both on social media and we frequently collaborate over there and do Instagram lives together and such. So if you're interested in learning more about working with us one-on-one, the best place to go is to the website. You'll be able to find a link to schedule a virtual introduction consult with Amy and I. And then we also have something new coming up in 2023. So it's a hybrid virtual small group and one-on-one coaching program. So registration is not opening up for a couple more weeks, but your listeners can be the first to get notified when the program is live. So we have a bit.ly link for this. So it's bit.ly forward slash root for healthy hair and root is spelled R-O-O-T. So yeah, that's that's something that we're really excited about. So hopefully your listeners can get, get lined up first. Okay, perfect. And we'll link to everything you just mentioned in the show notes. So it's easy for everyone to find it. Super. Ladies, I had fun. This was a great conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. And Thank I'm you sure you'll... Up probably get questions dms or some type of you know follow-up from listeners we're here for it great i really (laughs) appreciate your time thank you so much daphna thank you so much